Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Mike Parks at Intersecting Ideas, a podcast dedicated to talking about life and culture and just engaging people who are specialists in their field. And this episode that's upcoming, I feel like it's a crescendo to the past two that we had. If you hadn't checked out Sal Scatino, licensed psychotherapist, we had that one on. And then right after that, we had Alex Miller, a forensic psychiatrist on. So this conversation is with Dr. Skoll, Dr. Andrew Skoll, and he is a professor of sociology at the University of California. Man, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Mike. It's lovely to be here. Yeah. Oh, I, I man. you'd like me to introduce myself a little bit, talk about where oh, I came yeah. from. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. What I would like to hear, Andrew, is kind of what intrigued you, you know, along the way to get you into studying the, the area of mental illness and what was your education, kind of your background, a little bit of your credentials, you know, the Cliff sure. Notes version. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I grew up mostly in, in England. I was actually born in Scotland, but moved to England when I was all of two months old. I did spend three years in Africa and then came back and went to Oxford as an undergraduate and studied something called politics, philosophy, and economics. So I had a fairly broad background in the social sciences and in the philosophical field as well. And from there, I proceeded to graduate work at Princeton on the East Coast. I went there for largely non-academic reasons. I'd met my wife at Oxford, and she was an American, and I followed her back over here because she had some college to finish. So oh, I was at, that's, that's funny. <laughs> so <laughs> I was at Princeton for four years as a grad student. I later went back for a year as a faculty member. I enjoyed the latter a lot more than being a grad student when I was pretty impoverished. And Princeton was a rather dull town for somebody with not much money. But in any event, I almost by accident stumbled across a number of books that appeared in the early 1970s, one of them actually a little bit before that, that dealt with the history of madness. It wasn't a subject I thought I was going to do when I entered graduate school, but I read what became a rather famous book called Madness and Civilization in its English translation by Michel Foucault. And I read a book which got a lot of attention in 1971 called The Discovery of the Asylum, which was about how Americans decided to institutionalize the mentally ill in the 19th century. So I thought that I could study the equivalent thing to David Rothman. I could look at the rise of the asylum and the associated emergence of psychiatry in Britain. And that was the subject of my doctoral research, which took me back to Britain. My wife and I had always thought we would move back and live in Britain. So that research topic was actually in part designed to help me get a job in England. But in the event, my first job was over here in the United States. And once I was launched on that career, I remained here with some research trips to England of extended periods for the rest of my career moving uh, after 10 years from the East Coast to the West and staying in, in California pretty much ever since. When I was trying to get a job, uh, I was trying to sell myself as somebody interested in Victorian lunacy reform to a sociology department that would be quite skeptical of somebody burrowing around in the 19th century and in England, no less. <laughs> so as I went around in the ritual that, that universities used to hire here, I had to make a presentation of my research. And I would explain to people that they ought to be interested as sociologists because it was in the 19th century that mental illness, madness as it had been, became decisively defined as a medical problem. It sort of transformed into a form of illness that had a longer history, but it was in the 19th century when doctors really came to monopolize the treatment of mental illness. And beyond that, uh, it was also the period where this new profession emerged for the first time. So uh, as I talked about that, 
people wanted to know about the contemporary field. They were sociologists, after all. They kept saying to me, well, if they knew a little bit, they'd say, well, you must be glad these dreadful Victorian asylums are disappearing. Or if they didn't know about it, they'd say, well, what's happening now, you see? And I thought, well, that's a very interesting topic. I'd been so buried in the 19th century, I hadn't looked at it. And then I thought, well, there's so much capital, both intellectual capital and physical capital, invested in mental hospitals. How on earth could they suddenly be disappearing? Uh, mm -hmm. Well, it turns out they were. And yeah. so that it's really just... became my first book. Well, it yep. was the time of community psychiatry, everybody talking about bringing the patient back into a welcoming community and how this would be a grand reform and also would not, not least save a lot of money. And my book was one of the first to really criticize that notion, to suggest that community care was a sham, it wasn't being built, that mental patients were being expelled from the asylum into a not very welcoming community, and that society was piling up a whole host of problems. Problems that I first spoke about in the mid-70s and lo and behold are all, ar all around us today. I mean, mm. just for an instance, yeah. uh, the mayor of New York is now trying to sweep the mentally ill off the streets. The new mayor of, of Los Angeles announced as her first initiative trying to deal with the homeless problem, which is not just a mental illness problem, but a chunk of it is. And the same thing has happened up in San Francisco. So that really launched me on a career of looking at mental disturbances and how societies have responded to them over time. And nice. I wrote a num number of specialized books on that subject. But increasingly, I had in mind two very large projects that over 40 years I kind of wrestled with and tried to make sense of. In 2016, I think it was, I published a, a very large book, which was an exercise in Hutzburg called Madness in Civilization, from the Bible to Freud and the Madhouse to Modern Medicine, which tried to talk about how mental illness, mental disturbance had been conceived of and responded to in societies from ancient Greece and ancient China all the way down to the present, and looking at art and music and literature and architecture and politics and religion and culture as all in, as madness impinged on all of those things. And the second big project, which is the one I think that led you to invite me onto this program, was wrestling with the problem of mental illness and how it's been coped with in American society from the very mm -hmm. origins of what we now call psychiatry in the early 19th century, all the way down to as close to the present as, as one can get, given that a book appears about a year after you finish writing it. So exactly. I, my research finishes in about 2021, but it, otherwise it really tries to encompass that whole range of, of um, history. Well, that transitions us very well, and you have quite an awesome history, especially studying the way you've, you've gone through different academic routes and mm. looked over a myriad of areas. But for the listening audience, today we're going to really focus in on most current book. It's Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness. And we're going to probably go over five different areas. Take a quick look at history, where you start your book. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about how there are how mentally ill are generally susceptible to therapeutic experimentation, and so are women and people of color. Look at yes. community care that you had mentioned, and then finally land at looking some of the crisis facing contemporary psychiatry today. So before we jump in, actually on some of the history, I'd like to jump in there because at the very beginning mm. of your chapter, The Maliseum of the Mad, you say this began around 1820s. And what I found intriguing was as soon as I saw that number, I thought, Man, this is right on the heels of the French Revolution and the, the Romantic era. You're in the, the thrust of the Romantic era, and you yes. argue that there was this increased optimism to cure insanity. And when I look at the Romantics, I see there was a shift in our thinking that we thought like feelings and emotions is where we should mm -hmm. kind of 
you know, find truth, not logic and reason so much. And then we see this throughout the works of people like, you know, Oscar Wilde, where he talks about freedom being more important than morality. And then we see it in some of the artist's work expressed like liberty leading the people where they're holding the, yes. the French flag. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the wanderer above the sea of fog that's staring out into the onset. And it's like there's this aspect of, you know, an increased, more of a centrality on humanity or even like kind of what some people have dubbed today as expressive individualism or the quest in romantics to kind of conquer things. How have you seen those thoughts? I mean, those are kind of some of the ideas floating around the time in the 1820s. How have you seen that impact Mm. what we see in the quest to help mentally? Right, right. Well, it is very important to realize that when asylums arrived on the scene as the primary response to serious forms of mental illness, it really was associated with a real sense of utopian optimism about what could be accomplished. In part, this was not just the romantic elements that you pointed to, but also the enlightenment, the sense that it was possible to control things in a novel fashion. The world was being transformed physically and in other ways in quite dramatic fashion. For example, in the, in the 18th century, we'd learned to selectively breed both animals and crops and, and change nature in the process. We had developed canals and subsequently a little bit after the 1820s, railroads that move people at astonishing speed as they then thought it and over great distances. Uh, so the world was changing Human beings were also seeming to change. Uh, They were having to adapt, for example, to uh, much more urban life and to industrialized life. So the sense that there were possibilities of change and change for the better was quite widespread. And the earliest elements who sought to change the treatment of the mentally ill saw the past as essentially barbaric, as one where the mentally ill had been repressed, they'd often been beaten, they'd been housed in prisons, in cages. Uh, These new institutions run along what was called moral treatment lines, were specially designed architecturally and socially to coax the mentally ill person into reasserting his or her powers of social control, uh, control over their own behavior. And that was through a system of individualized treatment, but also coaxing them, teaching them that they could, in fact, suppress these emotions and these thoughts that were otherwise rendering them unfit for the rest of human society. So when I say that was a period of great optimism, the earliest alienists, they didn't yet call themselves psychiatrists. That term came from Germany, was only adopted in the very late latter part of the 19th century. But the alienists argued that they could cure 70, 80, even 85 or 90 percent of people with serious mental illness if they could be brought into these new curative establishments. And that set up a huge problem because in reality, that wasn't possible, at least not on a mass basis. And over time, what transpired was that when people came into the asylum, perhaps 35 or 40 percent of them would leave cured at the end of a year. Another 10 percent would usually die in that first year from various physical ailments they came in with. And the remainder would stay behind. And what that meant over time was that a larger and larger fraction of the asylum population was long-stay patients. Because if you didn't get out within a year, odds were you weren't going to leave except in a pine box. So By the latter part of the 19th century, the last three or three and a half decades, the image of the asylum had shifted drastically from a curative institution to a kind of holding pen, a place where we kept the mad out of sight and prevented them from causing trouble for the rest of us. There was a section that you had wrote about those aging folks, and they would bring their their children or bring their loved ones there because either, I don't know, the reasons. They wasn't want to care for them or they didn't have any alternatives. And then they would literally live out the rest of their days there. And, you know, I think that kind of transitions us a little bit into kind of our second point we were looking at in that people with serious mental illness have been unusually vulnerable to therapeutic experimentation. 
And in the insane asylums, there is a myriad of practices we can look back to. And now we look back in hindsight and say, oh my gosh, it seems so barbaric. But I also think when I look at that and I look at through history, it also makes me think, and this will, at the end, we'll tie this on, is like, what practices are we doing today that in a hundred years, we're going to look back and say, oh my goodness, this is so barbaric. Yeah. <laughs> but let's, yeah, let's we go shall see. But let's, yeah. let's talk a little bit about that transition. So yes. there was a real crisis of confidence in the profession when their claims to be able to cure met up against the reality that they couldn't. How to explain that away? Initially, the explanation was, to blame the victim, to say the mental patients were biologically defective. They were, in the language of the time, degenerates, people who, in whom evolution had run in reverse. They had lost the essence of their humanity. They were incurable because it was a biological problem that we couldn't reach. And so what to do in that case? Well, it justified locking them up so they didn't breed because they lacked the restraints of normal people. But it also suggested perhaps we should look for other remedies. And the most serious of those, which spread quite widely, was the idea that we would sterilize the mentally ill so they couldn't reproduce. Uh, That led to a very famous Supreme Court decision in 1927, Buck versus Bell, where Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was the chief justice, said, three generations of idiots enough. The state can have a compelling interest in extinguishing the ability to procreate. That was one direction things went. And under the Nazis, it led to the idea that these were just useless people, useless eaters, as the Nazis put it, and they killed them all. They murdered a quarter million or more mental patients. That's where the final solution got started. That's where they devised the gas chambers for use initially on the mentally ill and then on other undesirable people. Now, that was a very difficult situation for a healing profession to be in. Very uncomfortable. On the other hand, what we have to bear in mind is mental illness there meant the deprivation of all civil rights. You lost the ability to control your life. You were locked away. You were shut up in a double sense. Not only were you shut away, but your voice was silenced. Nothing you said mattered because you were mad and you, you weren't uttering any, anything sensible. So in the desperation to try to do something curative, this launched between the mid-19-teens and the early 1950s, a whole series of experimental treatments, which patients were not equipped to resist at all. So one example was the idea that brains were being poisoned somehow, and that was why you were going mad. Where was the poison coming from? It was from chronic infection somewhere in your body. If you didn't have antibiotics, how were you going to deal with that? Surgical bacteriology, meaning going in and ripping the offending bits out, teeth, tonsils. When you don't get better, is the theory wrong? Oh, no. You're swallowing those germs. So now we go down and we start taking out stomachs and spleens and colons and uteruses because women are disproportionately affected by this and many other treatments. So that was a treatment which actually killed almost half of the people who got the more serious forms of surgery, but it persisted in America for, oh, a good two decades. There were other weird ideas. One of the great breakthroughs of 20th century medicine, and it was a, a great breakthrough, was the discovery of insulin, which transformed diabetes from a death sentence to a chronic illness. But if you inject too much insulin, somebody goes into unconsciousness, into a coma. So some bright spark thought, well, if we remove the brain from all the noise of the world around them and we put them in these comas, that will somehow cure their schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And he claimed he could cure 80% of the patients in that treatment. And it spread very rapidly, although it was incredibly expensive, both in terms of medical personnel and, and money. So... It was always a minority thing. Other people decided, and this is false, but the observation was you couldn't simultaneously have epilepsy and schizophrenia. The leap from that is, well, maybe if we artificially create epileptic seizures, we'll drive out the schizophrenia. 
And so we try injecting chemicals into the person's body to create these seizures. Now imagine the scene. You're psychotic. You're paranoid. A bunch of white-coated people seize you, strap you down, inject something into your body. And what happens then? For 5, 10, 15 minutes, sometimes an hour, you think you're about to die. And then you have this massive convulsion, which very often breaks your vertebrae or your hip bones. And supposedly that's going to be therapeutic. It was an attempt to make that more humane that two Italians devised electroshock, which still remains a treatment today, is used not for schizophrenia mostly, but for very serious treatment-resistant depression, suicidal cases, and so forth. Rather controversially, but nonetheless still very much alive, and, yeah. and really the only one of these desperate remedies that survives as a, as a more or less accepted treatment in some quarters today. You know, when I hear you say this, in my mind, I'm just thinking it begs a question that they're looking at mental disorder or somebody exhibiting some symptoms, and they're chasing something down. One thing didn't work. They go, oh, justification. We need to move to the next. We need to keep going. You need more treatments of this, and therefore it will resolve it. And it's also kind of intertwined with that is the thinking that the problem is trapped in the body. And if we yeah. extract an aspect of this body, it will remove the problem or the bot or the or it's trapped in the mind. And we need to, you know, perform a lobotomy or the infamous yes. ice pick lobotomy that took hold in 1935 and just yes. ends up winning the Nobel Prize in the 49. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Quite extraordinary. That was really the 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 most extreme in many ways of, of those treatments. And you're quite right. It was introduced in 1935 in Portugal, really spread in the United States through the efforts of a team at George Washington University, Jim Watts, who was a neurosurgeon, and far more importantly, Walter Freeman, who was a neurologist, not a surgeon. It was Freeman who devised the uh, ice pick lobotomy, literally uh, using a hammer and an ice pick and driving an ice pick into the brain via the orbital. It, It really... Freeman recorded he and his partners conducting lobotomies under local anesthetic. And I opened one of the chapters with a transcript of of a poor guy. The result of his operation isn't recorded, but you hear him in the course of the operation telling them to stop, and they ignore him. They proceed and uh, lobotomize him. The reason they did it under local anesthetic was they decided they didn't know how much brain tissue to sever. And by trial and error, they claimed that when somebody became disoriented, that was the time to stop cutting. If you stop before that, the person remained mad. If you kept cutting, they became a vegetable. This was the the golden mean, as it were. And so you talk the patient through the operation. When they became confused, you stop cutting more brain tissue. Bizarre kind of idea, you might think, but one that captured American psychiatry and really didn't die away until the late 50s, even the early 60s, more a matter of generational change. And also the arrival, of course, beginning in 1954, of a much more what looked like conventional medicine in the form of a pill that treated mental illness. First, Thorazine, which was known in Europe as Largactyl, or Mighty Drug, which was discovered purely by accident in the early 1950s and came to market in 54. And then shortly after that, another accident where they were treating people with advanced tuberculosis with with a drug called Ipronizid. And, you know, if you've got advanced TB, your prognosis is pretty lousy and you're usually going to be very happy. These people started skipping down the hallways when they were on this drug And it dawned on them, well, if it's affecting mood among these people, maybe we could use it to treat people with depression. So that was where the first um, antidepressives came from. So there was a drugs revolution in this period, and it's important to understand um, because in some circles among Scientologists, for example, who talk about, you know, toxic psychiatry, these these are poisonous drugs. Mm -hmm. They certainly have very severe side effects in many people. 
And the question of whether they provide sufficient advantage to offset those side effects is, is a tricky one. And for many patients, the answer is no. For others, the answer is clearly yes. But it is important to understand these drugs did have fairly dramatic effects. And for psychiatrists who were struggling with their medical identity, this was a godsend to have a form of treatment that looked very much like the way other illnesses were being treated, particularly after the war. Remember, once was said before by medical historians, if you went to see a doctor before 1910, odds were equal that he'd make things worse or make things better. <laughs> um, but we did discover some genuine magic bullets. I spoke <laughs> earlier of insulin, but more importantly, the advent of, of antibiotics, of penicillin and later antibiotics, had, had dramatic effects. Those really were magic bullets that killed off bacterial infections and saved lots and lots of lives. And so it was that that really built the modern drugs industry. And mm -hmm. when these drugs came along as a treatment for mental illness, they were initially overblown as all kinds of treatments have been in psychiatry. Henry Cotton ripping out people's guts, that was gonna cure 80% of them. Giving people insulin comas was gonna cure 80% of them. Giving them injections of metrosol was gonna, on and on it went. but. The drugs were not penicillin. They weren't a psychiatric penicillin. They didn't and don't cure mental illness. What they do at best is provide some symptomatic relief. And we should take care around this because relieving symptoms is something sometimes all that doctors, both psychiatrists and regular doctors, all they can do. And for people suffering, that's a a good thing. The question is what price you pay for the relief of those symptoms and how many people experience that relief yeah. uh, in bearable ways. And that's a very complicated issue, much more complicated than psychiatrists in the early years were willing to admit. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a nuance. It could be a something we chase down for two hours mm. in conversation. <laughs> but for I think, sure, yeah. I mean, we talked about the vulnerability of those with mental illness, and I, I think we could transition into how it impacted women and people of color. And when I think about the vulnerability of yes. mental illness as a whole, what I think about is the term of dehumanizing people comes to mind. And I think that that's been the root and the justification for experimentation on people and horrific acts. You know, we look at things like euthanasia or yes. slaves throughout history. You know, mm. even Frederick Douglass, he said they're perceived as pigs or the unborn less than human or people in comas. Or as you talked about, the Nazis and the Jews, you know, Hitler wants All to right. make the Ubermensch and, and he sees the Jews as less than human. And I think that these type of arguments have been the undergirding for, oh my goodness, the most heinous acts is what underpins a lot of these. And I think I see that coming through when I read your book, specifically on the area of yeah. those that are vulnerable women and people of color. Well, I think, you know, mental illness is profoundly destabilizing. One of my friends who's, who's also a historian of psychiatry once put it the, in this way. He said, mental illness is the most solitary of afflictions for the person experiencing it and the most social of maladies for everybody around them. The effects of mental breakdown in destabilizing ordinary everyday interaction in making us unsure about what's going to come next. We can't control somebody because they don't respond in the way the rest of us do. They don't seem to share our common sense universe. Uh, they don't behave with common sense. But what I mean by that is they also don't seem to have the same sense of the world as the rest of us. So mm -hmm. their presence is both symbolically and practically often quite threatening to people. And one of the ways in which we respond to that uncertainty and, and threat is to try to isolate them, to often punish them, even in the face of evidence that really those, those are inappropriate responses. Now, you spoke of women and racial minorities, and clearly the history I describe is one where 
everybody is vulnerable. You and I as white males could be subjected to many of these things I've talked about. But what's absolutely remarkable when I look at it is if you look at the bottomies, for example, we don't have systematic data on it because nobody wrote down every in the central register every time somebody had a lobotomy. But every hospital that's been looked at where we look at who got lobotomized, women were 65 to 70% of the patients having their brains severed and messed around with. The same was true with Henry Cotton. The same was true for ECT and remains true for ECT. Women's use of antidepressants is significantly higher than men's. The statistics are really quite extraordinary. Today, uh, you're saying today? today? Yes. Today, Andrew? So if, yep. you look, if you look, women over the age of, of 50, a large fraction of them are taking antidepressants. When you get to age 65, it's a huge fraction and disproportionately more than their male equivalents. Now, there are a variety of factors behind that. Men tend to be reluctant to go and see doctors, reluctant to expose their emotional life to others. Often they delay getting medical treatment and it kills them. But nonetheless, there's also something else going on here, I think. So there is that pattern. Racially speaking, what happened in, in the asylum age was initially blacks tended to be excluded from asylums. And then post-Civil War, when they started to arrive, two things happened. Some Asylum segregated them in a separate and distinctly un yep. unequal asylum, or many, particularly down south, produced asylums for their colored, as they were called. And those were even more hellish places than the state hospitals in which white folk were confined. So there's a, a long history of unequal treatment, and it persists to today. If you look at access to psychiatric care, just like access to medical care, that varies along class lines, but also along racial lines. And it's a, it's a disturbing aspect of the history. There's no question. Hmm. Well, that's, that's intriguing. So yeah, you're saying even disproportionate today, you're seeing well, that across. Well, yes, you, you will see some areas. Uh, some areas where at least there are wide variations in treatment. And one can partially explain that, as I indicated, but some of it, I think, also is this age-old disposition that goes all the way back to the Greek medicine of Hippocrates and Galen, which treated women's bodies as somehow different from real human beings, that is, white males. Um, and, <laughs> and yes, so there, there is this unconscious bias, I think, that that sits there and for a long time was reinforced by the fact that the medical profession was overwhelmingly male, still is to some degree, that's beginning to change now. But for example, in the 19th century, one of the remedies, I, t I talked about sterilization, was to remove the ovaries of women, ovaryotomy, normal ovaryotomies became quite common as a remedy often for hysterical women, women who weren't even in the asylums, in fact. So you do see this over and over again. And only now are we beginning, for example, when new drugs and new medical treatments are tested, we're now beginning to recognize that, hey, we need diversity in the populations we're studying. We need to include mm -hmm. women. We need to yeah. include people of color because there, are, there can be and often are significant differences in the way they respond to whatever intervention we're, we're talking about. And that's not yeah. something confined to psychiatry. That's a, a general issue within medicine as a whole. And, you know, we're talking about you know, mental institutions and the treatment of people, but this really does pour out in the society because, you know, these people eventually get out and they're going to live their lives. And what happens, I think some of the same thoughts got carried over, especially you talk about sterilization, because it's reminded me of prisons that they went in and sterilized the men. You yeah. know, there's the less than human. We, these people can't even reproduce. So let's sterilize them. 
it obviously happened in the wards, it happens in prisons. Mm. Well, you but think of the, oh, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which, of course, is a very famous example of of African-American males being left when there was an effective treatment for their syphilis so that feds could study the long-term effects of syphilis on the human body, yeah. uh, something that even now has caused immense distrust in the African-American community of medicine and of, of uh, experimental treatments with yeah, exactly. one can well understand why it's there, you know? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, if you've been experimented on as a, as a population or a community as a whole, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's warranted. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the community care because yes. you, okay. you title it community care is a sham. And for those that don't know, in the 1950s, institutions housed over 150 million people in 1963, mm-hmm. JFK, he envisioned 1,500 community care buildings in that to release all the people and community will take care of them. And you wrote extensively on this. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this. Yeah, actually, the peak population of American mental hospitals is 1955. About, on any given day, about 558,000 people were in state and county mental hospitals. Given that the American population has almost doubled since then, or has actually doubled. If we still institutionalize people at the same rate, there'd be over a million people in mental hospitals today. Oh my gosh. In fact, round about 40,000. So there's a huge missing population that's moved somewhere else. Now, mental hospital censuses, the numbers of people confined, had increased quite steadily from when the first ones arrived on the scene in America in the 1820s all the way down to the mid-50s. Almost every year you saw an increase in the numbers of patients. That The turnaround was initially quite slow. Between 1955 and 1960, maybe 25,000 patients fewer. And that's continued into the early 60s. And then suddenly from about 1965 onwards, the pace of discharge accelerated. It grew and then it accelerated again in the 70s. And by the end of the 80s, mental hospitals were increasingly mothballed, falling into disrepair, being demolished or being turned into something else. So all those patients had moved out and it was proclaimed this was a grand reform. Many psychiatrists thought it was the advent of drugs that explained that whole thing. It was a very simple explanation. Now we, now we had a modern treatment. We were able to discharge them. There's lots of evidence that that's simply not the case. What happened was very much a change in social policy. And it was interesting because the momentum behind it came from two very disparate groups. On the left, there was growing recognition of all the horrors that the mental hospitals had spawned, a sense encapsulated by the American, uh, Canadian-American sociologist Irving Goffman in his book Asylums, that mental hospitals were the problem, not the solution, that they systematically disabled people, made them less able to function in the real world, and in fact were the cause, I think this is romantic nonsense, but nonetheless, or at least a grave exaggeration, that the real problems of the mental patient weren't from coming from within, but were the result of the deprived environment that the state hospitals represented. So you wanted to rescue the mentally ill from, from these houses of horror. On the other side of the equation, all those buildings were aging, they were decrepit, they were often fire traps. They required an enormous investment of capital and the costs of running them were multiplying because of a number of things the unionization of state employees, the reduction of what had been a work week for mental hospital attendants of 65 or 70 hours to 40. So the, the big increases. So on the right, and the father figure in lots of ways of this is the sainted Ronald Reagan, there was this sense that these places were horribly costly and were about to become even more so as you had to replace the, the ones that were falling down. So... That unholy alliance, if I may put it that way, really led to the sense that really wasn't examined very carefully, that anything would be better than the asylum and that we could 
do something in the community. Now, you spoke of John Kennedy's Community Mental Health Center's initiative, which he proposed just before he was assassinated and actually passed into law under Lyndon Johnson. The Kennedy family had a deep and dark secret that wasn't known at the time and is quite widely known now. John Kennedy's youngest sister, Rosemary, had been subjected to a lobotomy. And she'd been lobotomized by Walter Freeman and Jim Watts. And she was rendered essentially a vegetable. She had to be re-toilet trained. She barely could walk. Her mental functions were damaged. She was hidden away first in Minnesota, I think, and then later in Florida. Uh, The family largely kept their distance because they didn't want that scandal to leak. So a lot of family concern as a result with mental health policy. Eunice Shriver, for example, was very involved with the Special Olympics, and John Kennedy, as we mentioned, with this community mental health legislation. Two things about that. The AMA fiercely opposed it because it, it seemed like socialized medicine to them. Now the state was going to interfere in, in the community. So funding was never really forthcoming for those on more than a temporary basis. And as well, the people running those places found the seriously mentally ill an undesirable population. They were very difficult to treat. They weren't grateful for the treatment they got. But there were a whole bunch of other people with more minor, I don't mean to dismiss them, but not the kind of serious problems that led to mental hospitalization. Mm -hmm. And those were the kinds of people that ended up being treated in those centers. So what happened was more a product, for example, if you look at the downturn of hospital populations, from 1965 to 72, the overwhelming bulk of the people who were discharged are old people. Why is that? We passed Medicare in 1965. When people are in mental hospitals, they're a state charge. They fall on the state budget. When they're put into nursing homes, they go onto the federal budget. So old people are systematically excluded. Wisconsin, for example, passed a law in 1967 or 68 absolutely banning anybody over 65 being admitted to a mental hospital. So that's the first tranche. Then under Nixon, of all people, in the early 1970s, we get SSI, Supplemental Security Income, a part of the social security system that doesn't depend on employment history, gives disabled people and people with mental disabilities a check each month. And so we get the rise of a board and care industry, nursing home industry, which is largely unsupervised and prone to scandal because the less money you spend on the patients you're caring for, the more profit you're left with. And the market works quite efficiently to drive out humane operators and leave the not so humane in charge. And as the numbers expelled grow, uh, they initially are dumped into the ghettos where poor people are already politically powerless and find it hard to resist this new imposition. But eventually the numbers are such that they spill out. And that's really what we're seeing right now. You see all this furor in contemporary politics about homelessness, and homelessness has multiple causes, and it's certainly not confined to the mentally ill, but a very significant fraction of the mentally ill, and the ones people find most disturbing are, in fact, homeless mentally ill people. And we're seeing a lot of political backlash around that. We also see this, I believe, currently in, in the jail system. Three of the largest mental health institutions are yes. jails. So we have yes. the homeless, we have jails, and right. I believe from what I was yes. reading, it, it was shortly after the CARE Act, there was a, not a massive portion, but a portion of people that did end up going to jail that yeah. were released. Yeah. So this one this is one of these almost uh, cyclical bits of history. When the mental hospitals were invented, it was to rescue the mentally ill from the jails and from the attics. Now, the three largest places confining mental patients in the United States are the LA County Jail, Cook County Jail in Chicago, and Rikers Island in New York. And for many of the mentally ill, what we see is a cycle of 
becoming a sidewalk psychotic, living unhoused in the streets, sometimes in flop houses, sometimes getting brief periods of inpatient psychiatric care where drugs are used to try to damp down their florid symptoms. They're dumped back out. They commit a crime. They go to jail. And the cycle repeats itself and endlessly. And it is a great scandal, I think, of our times that yeah. we're looking at this situation all over again. So, Andrew, I think that that leads us to kind of our final point. I would like to land the plane and talk about <laughs> this next segment here, which is like the crescendo uh, of the conversation because it's drilling down mm -hmm. into where we are today. It's a crisis facing contemporary psych psychiatry. We've gone through through history. We've looked at, you know, the problems in the body, the problems in the mind. We need the shock with lumbotomies. And then we picked up and went into trying to discover the human genome and like the origin yeah. of schizophrenia, bipolar and depression and all the neuroscience route, like yes. we're blaming it on the brain aspect. Mm -hmm. So that one I think would be a, a good okay. one to, okay. to talk about. So something we've kind of passed over and I'm going to have to talk about way too quickly. Okay. No <laughs> America, America was almost unique outside Buenos Aires in that after World War II, the commanding heights of American psychiatry, such as they were, were occupied not by people emphasizing the body and the brain, but by psychoanalysts. Freud's ideas enjoyed great popularity in post-World War II America. You see it in Hollywood movies. Look at Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound as a splendid example, mm -hmm. but there are lots of examples I could cite. You see it on broad, in Broadway shows, but you see it in the universities where social scientists embrace Freud's ideas. They're just common currency. Benjamin Sparks bringing up your baby is infused with Freudianism, okay? And outpatient psychiatry flourishes as never before. And the analysts who are dispensing that make much more money than most doctors and certainly more than the people running the state hospitals. Funnily enough, it's in the state hospitals that the drugs emerge that produce the revolution we've been talking about. Now, psychoanalysis essentially dies quite rapidly. People are going to criticize me for saying something so extreme. But the reality <laughs> is it has become a small, minor part of contemporary psychiatry. Academic psychiatry has largely abandoned it, and it's a niche thing treating rich people who see it as a path towards psychological growth, which it may be. As far as treating serious mental patients, it's, it's vanished from the scene. Round about 1980, when American psychiatry changed its diagnostic system and, and released what's called DSM-3, it re-biologized, it re-emphasized the biological basis of mental illness. George W. Bush, George the less bad, in my view, um, <laughs> proclaimed 1990s as the decade of the brain. And you are absolutely right. What happened as we moved back to biology was the notion that somehow mental illness was purely a brain disease. And so we should look for it in two places. We should try to understand the neuroscience, the, the workings of the brain, which indeed we, we have learned a lot about, or perhaps it was also rooted in genetics that had been dismissed for a long time because of its association with Hitler, but it reemerged initially through family studies. But then once we started to be able to decode the human genome, something that finally arrived in 2003, the notion was we would discover genes for schizophrenia, genes for bipolar disorder, genes for major depression. And we had the technology to begin to do that. What's happened? Mental illness seems to be among the least genetically determined of illnesses. It also is, uh, there's no single set of genes for schizophrenia or, or any of these other things. There seems to be a profound overlap to the extent many different, very small scale shifts in the genetic code contribute to mental illness. It's not a one-to-one. -one. It's not, if you have a schizophrenic parent, you're going to end up with schizophrenic children. It may be some completely other form of mental disorder. And in general, you 
I want to jump on that, Andrew, because I Mm. think that most, the vast majority of people would perceive that. That's what they would think of. They would think that that it's passed down from your genes. But you're saying the data does not show this. And that really creates hope in a family. Like, yeah, because it's it not would, a biological determinism. Right. Uh, it's not, uh, you know. It's, to the extent that it looks as though genetics may have a role to play, it's it's something that may predispose people perhaps to a slightly mm-hmm. greater degree. It's not determinative in that classic yeah. sense. So when I was debating some of this with some leading psychiatrists, one of them pointed to me a study and said, well, look, if you gather these hundreds of different variants in this person's gene, they're about three times as likely to be schizophrenic as you or me, right? I said, well, that's very interesting. What you profess is that the lifetime chances of somebody getting schizophrenia are about one in a hundred. So this means for, for this group of a hundred patients is three in a hundred. Suppose you tell a 15 year old, you have an excess likelihood of developing schizophrenia. Well, 97 of those 100 patients are not going to go on to develop schizophrenia. But boy, is their identity going to be spoiled? Is their anxiety level going to be through <laughs> the absolutely. roof? Right. So um, when it comes to neuroscience, things sort of emerge backwards. The drugs, as I explained, arrived accidentally. Then we wanted to try and figure out, well, why the hell do these things work? And we discovered, for example, that the antipsychotics, not all of them, certainly not some of the more recent ones, but the first generation very often seemed to affect dopamine levels in the brain. So for a while, the notion was, well, schizophrenia is caused by dopamine, right? Or as we saw when we got Prozac on the scene, you get depressed because you don't have enough serotonin sloshing around in your brain. Both of those are scientifically discredited, although widely still believed among the general public. But certainly we do know now when in the mid 50s, when you asked neuroscientists, how does the brain work? It was mainly through electrical signals. What developed as a result of this research was, no, we understand now that biochemical signals are tremendously important in the workings of the brain in ways we're only beginning to fathom. So we've learned a bunch. The problem is, if you say, has any of that advance in basic neuroscience led to therapeutic breakthroughs? It hasn't. It doesn't translate. And then on top of that, if you say, do we know what the causes of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or major depression are? The honest answer is, No, we do not. We have no biological markers. We diagnose those symptomatically. And indeed, there's growing a growing sense in some quarters that those labels don't cut the world up properly. The the distinctions we make between these disorders are artificial based on relying on symptoms rather than the underlying pathology, whatever that might be. This was reminiscent of a conversation I just had couple of weeks ago on the podcast that it's these symptoms are generally brought about through conversation, you know, yes. through talk, and then you line it up against a DSM and then mm. you say, okay, six months of this and X, Y, Z, you have these symptoms, then your psychiatrist, psychologist, they line you up with those symptoms. And that's generally how it's done. But I have noticed that there's been a trend, like a social trend, that people are embracing the idea that the FRMI for imaging can help mm. pinpoint certain aspects and, you know, and it just measures blood flow within the brain, you right. know? So if you have like extra blood flow with the frontal cortex, does that mean you're going to be susceptible to bipolar? Things like that. What would you say on this point? Well, I've written a bit on fMRIs and the, the problems with them. The correlations we have are quite weak. They often very opposite mental processes seem to show up with the same patterns. We do see certain regions of the brain acting up, but basically what we're seeing here is with a delay, the manipulation of signals to try to create a picture of what's going on in the brain, but we can't really translate blood flow 
into our thoughts and our emotions. Uh, exactly. Nobody's yet been yes. able to do that in any convincing kind of way. And the laboratory studies we have really are quite crude. They don't really reflect natural history, all the diversity of human experience. And in general, as we're getting towards the conclusion, I'd say the following. There's been a tendency, Leon Eisenberg at Harvard said it very, very neatly. He said, after the war, we existed in a time where there was a brainless psychiatry. And now we've moved to a mindless psychiatry. Because back in the Freudian period, you didn't think about the body. And now, you know, it's all about the body. Well, this attempt to separate the biological and the social strikes me as a category mistake. It's just wrong. Your brain and mine and everybody around us who's a human being is a remarkably plastic organ. It, we're not just born with a brain that that's it for our lifetimes. What brain we end up with is very much a product of our experiences, both within the family and in a larger culture. And your brain wires and rewires itself. That's why I think traumatic instances, for example, can have a very powerful effect on future behavior. So separating the biological and the social is a mistake because the biology becomes social and the social becomes biology, yeah. if you see what I mean. Yeah. And, oh, absolutely. and so that's why when I look at the crisis of psychiatry, I see a set of drugs that are Band-Aids, not cures. Mm -hmm. An understanding of the origins of mental illness that is still extraordinarily primitive. A set of researches that so far have not led to the expected breakthroughs, either in understanding the basic pathology of mental illness or in developing innovative treatments. And one of the worries, unlike people who have no time at all for psych psychopharmacology, I think for some people... It literally is life-saving. It produces positive effects. For others, it's extremely negative. But one would like to see better drugs being invented. What in fact is happening is all the major pharmaceutical houses, having made billions and billions of dollars in this area, have retreated from research on future remedies. They're no longer doing it because there are other sources of profit that seem much more appealing elsewhere. This is a very intractable problem. Nobody's yet come up with a decent hypothesis that would trigger a different way of approaching the drug treatment of mental illness than we've had already. And in my view, drugs will never be 100% of the answer in any event. It's a masking of the emotion or helping people deal with the mm. experience of mm. an emotion. But I have noticed there's been you know, a couple of things in modern day TMS has still being used for like severe depression, mm -hmm. which is, you know, mm -hmm. brain stimulation or in the drug realm, I have friends that are medical doctors and they regularly give out ketamine in, yes. you know, yes. in, in a the real... hospitals. Right. It, so I've been asked about this ketamine, various psychedelic substances, mm -hmm. yes, possible treatments. And my reaction right now is to be very, very cautious because I've seen this movie too many times before where there are extravagant claims about what these things accomplish. Mm -hmm. And then over time, as we get more careful research, they begin to disappear. What we're seeing at the moment is largely uncontrolled studies with small numbers of people and claims of dramatic change. Now, I'm of a generation that grew up there was something around called special K, ketamine. Yeah, that's ketamine. <laughs> it was a party drug, okay? Mm -hmm. And in the 1960s, I not only did not inhale, but I did not try any of those substances. But <laughs> acid, acid and all those things were floating around, right? And they became anathema at the time of, of Richard Nixon. So I'm not surprised that if you take ketamine, it changes your mood. We know in some cases it changes your mood in a terrible fashion. You become psychotic. What the balance of advantages at the moment, I'm simply agnostic, but I have seen this particular movie too many times. Yeah. And so yeah. my disposition is to say, let's wait for control trials. Years ago, I was invited on to 60 Minutes. And then in the end, 
that show got scrapped because NBC ran a story on the same subject just a few weeks before the broadcast <laughs> I was supposed to be in. So I missed my 15 minutes of fame. But being interviewed by Leslie Stoll, I tried to say to her, look, what we have is enthusiasts for the, this technique who have operated on a handful of patients and report great results, but there've been no control trials. And she said, well, what if there are controlled trials and it works? I said, well, for a lot of reasons that I've explained, I, th I don't think it will. But if it does, of course, I understand. And that's, that would be great. Lo and behold, two controlled trials were then done in the team, 20 teens, both funded by the device manufacturers who thought, we have this huge potential market of all these depressed people. Both control trials were abandoned partway through because the results were so dismal. So, wow. So, <laughs> there we are. Um, hey, that's, I just, that's, a gr that's a great answer. You know, hold your cards until you have seen more empirical evidence, more results. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the, I would say the same thing. Ketamine and psilocybin for relieving yeah. these symptoms. That's, I'm going to hold off on well, that. Yeah. I mean, ketamine, you know, there are all these infusion centers, which basically working very often with chemotherapy for cancer patients. This is a very lucrative sideline. I mean, it's, it's a legit drug. It's a drug that the FDA has approved. And off-label uses are things we don't control very much. So I, I think it's, it's actually quite worrisome. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe yeah. I'll be proved wrong. <laughs> I hope so, oh, but I'm, I doubt yeah. it. <laughs> oh, my anyway, goodness, Andrew. It's great, man, great this, to talk, Mike. This has been a fantastic conversation. I would absolutely love to do it again uh, on another topic or you know, okay. dig down into a couple of these topics. But let me sign us out. This has been really Thank fun. You. Everyone, this is Dr. Andrew Skoll. His book recently we've been talking about, Desperate Remedies. You can Google him. He's written a number of books and articles that you could check out. Highly recommend him. So this is Mike Parks at Intersecting Ideas signing off. Thanks, all. Thank you, Mike.